The research does show that the quality of the relationship declines for about two-thirds of couples during the, the first two years postpartum. That's, that's a lot of people. When couples transition into parenthood, the relationship between these two people naturally shifts and evolves. But sometimes in our super child-centric society, we can lose sight of the importance of prioritizing and nurturing our relationship with our partners. Here today to talk about ways that couples can stay connected to one another throughout parenthood is Dr. Suzanne Berger. Suzanne has a private practice as a licensed clinical psychologist, and she has more than 25 years of experience. In this episode, we talk about activities that we can try with our partners to expand intimacy and communication, and it's really full of thought-provoking ideas that could really help, I think, couples reframe what it means to be in a committed relationship as you parent together. This episode is a must-listen for anyone seeking to be more deliberate in striking this harmonious balance between their role as a caregiver or a parent and as a partner. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, we are. We have a great guest today. I'm really, really excited. Suzanne Berger, you are here to talk with us about couples and parenting and identity shifts. So thank you so much for, for being here today. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here. And I'm excited to share with your audience some of the things that I have learned over the past. I mean, I've been in practice for over 30 years, but I've worked a lot with new parents over the last 20. And there's there's a lot that happens in the transition from being a couple and a, a twosome uh, to, you know, John Gottman is a well-known couples therapist when he and his wife wrote a book called And Baby Makes Three. And yeah. that's a big shift from two to three. Yeah. How, how, how did you get into this, this work? Like what's your, what's your story with, with this, this path? Sure. First, I used to see a lot of kids in therapy. Um, I saw, I, half of my training was with children and there was a time probably about 25, maybe 20 years ago where I kept running into this feeling of I'm working with the child, but whenever I have parenting meetings, I sense the tension or the conflict in the couple. And very often I felt like, wow, I can only do so much in this hour or week if this is what's going on at home. And I, I'm kind of more interested in seeing what's going on with the couple. So I started to do more couples work. I did some formal training in it. And then as part of that, there was this program through the Gottman Institute, which is out in Seattle, that was called Bringing Baby Home, that was a psychoeducational program. And I just thought, what, what a great resource to offer new parents. There's so much going on as new parents. There's so such a big adjustment. There's anxiety. There's exhaustion. Sometimes there's a mood issue. And very often the relationship gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah. It's so interesting because the reason that we even 
our colleagues and know each other is is through the Hudson Valley Birth Network, which is an amazing group of like clinicians and birth supporters in New York. And like, it's so interesting how I feel like our work is very much under that umbrella of like that perinatal maternal mental health space. But like, I feel like you and I have both found like, we're a bit like once removed from that direct work. Like I'm working with the sort of parenting family children piece and you're working with like the couple relationship piece, but it's all connected to that. Like when we become a family, how does that shift everything? <laughs> That's, that is the question, right? Yes. And that is partly how I got involved with Hudson Valley Birth Network because I thought, who is interested in, in knowing more about this? Who, who's the audience? And I remember trying to speak to OBGYNs and pediatricians and did a little bit there, but they, they weren't that receptive. I'm like, how else do you reach new parents? And then I, I, I found this group and I thought, wow, these are the people. Yeah. Um, that, that really have, they're working with, with um, new moms, new parents, um, and often with, with birth trauma or with, you know, um, you know whether it, it's depression, postpartum, that they could really benefit from some of this. And I, I think one of the things that's so challenging, especially in certain communities, and I think Westchester is one of them in, to some degree, is there's such a child-centric focus. A lot of people leave the city when they become parents so that they can provide, you know, better public school opportunities, more space. It's very much, oh, now we're a family. We're going to move to Westchester. And <laughs> there's so many messages around the kids, the kids. It's their schedule. It's, you know, Early on, it might be their 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 feeding and, and napping schedule, but by the time they're five, it's like, oh well, they've got on Saturday they've got soccer practice or theater or dance or, and and I think couples just get on that track and they they get, that gets reinforced around them, and it's very hard for them to get messaging otherwise to say you matter too as a couple. Yes, yes, and I think that that is like a parallel to the messaging that like the individual parents get, you know, like if we have a super child centric view and like, don't get me wrong, paying attention to the needs of the children are critical, but they live within a larger network of relationships and of people. And so it's like, we have to really be able to, like, I think what you're, you know, I agree with you. Like we got to zoom out and look at like, okay, how are we, how are, how is a family being supported on the level of the child? How are parents able to think about the child's needs and, and prioritize those? How are they able to identify the needs of each of their own, like as a parent, like whether it's maternal mental health or paternal mental health, like how are those individual parents getting support and, and thinking about that? And then even larger, like even more higher up on that sort of relational web is the couple's relationship, right? Outside of their role as parents, outside of their relationship with their child, but as a couple, it's also interconnected. Like the health of all of those things, the child, the parent, the, the parenting couple, the family as a system, like we're talking about family systems, right? We're talking about how, it, what is the health of the entire family system in each piece? Like I always kind of equate a family to a spider web, like it's all connected. You can't pull one thread 
without everything moving. We, we have to support the entire web. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. And you're, you're using images of a web and I'll share an image from Stan Tapkin, who is a well-known couples therapist. Um, he's written a few books and he talks about the, the parents as being the hub of a, of, of a bicycle wheel and, and the kids being, you know, like lines going out and these spokes in, in the wheel, um, but not making the kids the hub. It, it, for one thing, it's, it, it puts too much pressure on the child to feel like they are somehow holding the family together. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, John Gottman is, is known for saying that the best gift uh, you can give your child is, is a model for a strong and healthy relationship. And yes. I, I don't think we talk about that enough. No. Can you talk more about that? Like, I'm, I, I could not agree more. Um, and the idea of, like, modeling as a way, as the best way of teaching is like super core to like everything I believe. Um, but in terms of how it shows up in our own relationships as, as parents, like as the grownups, our relationships that we're modeling for our kids, how that's getting absorbed to them in the little, as the little sponges that they are. It can go from the most concrete thing, like, wow, at the, um, at the end of the day when there's a reunion after one or both parents have been away and at work, um, before they go to hug their children, they hug each other. And then they hug their child, and it's like a family hug. Um, that's, that's just a visual that hopefully is, is helpful. It can be modeling that mom and dad have some couple time. Um, and when, when you have infants, that's going to mean, you know, really relying on whatever resources you have. If you have friends or mom's group or dad's group, um, where you do a little bit of swapping for a couple of hours saying we're just going to have time, just we're going to have adult time. If you have family around, all the better. If you can rely on, on those resources, and some people can rely on childcare and pay for it, but certainly that's not everyone. It's prioritizing from a pretty early stage. We still take time for our relationship. We still have date night. Uh, there's research that shows that couples that, that thrive um, on average, I mean, there's um, some exceptions to this shortly, you know, postpartum, but during that, you know, maybe that three month window. But that, that on average, couples that thrive devote five and a half what Gottman calls magic hours to their relationship. And that might include just like 15 minutes daily of a real adult conversation to a regular date night or date afternoon or morning, if that's what it has to be. It's getting creative around that, but it's, it's, it's carving out time and space to yeah. make a couple a priority. Yeah. Tell me more about like what fits in magic time. Okay. It it gets broken down and, and, you know, I'm not a behaviorist and this can get kind of behavioral and prescriptive, but it includes everything from um, like a really present hug. You know, the research that shows that couples that hug for for 20 seconds start to co-regulate their their heart rate and their Mm. breath. Uh, so taking time for a real present hug and kiss, you know, de- departures and reunions are important places for couples to feel that sense of weenus, even with the demands of a crying baby. And it can include it, what 
Gottman calls 20-minute stress-reducing conversation daily. It's just each partner sharing what's going on in their day, not advising, not trying to solve it for each other, not feeling burdened by the other one's struggle, but, but witnessing mm-hmm. the importance of I'm here with you, we're in it together. And the date night or whatever time, like a couple of hours. And then there's something that I think for new parents is really hard to carve out, but, but um, Gottman calls it the state of the union meeting which is an opportunity to look at how's the relationship going? How are we doing as a couple? Not just how's our child doing, which is what a lot of conversations between your parents is about, but how are we doing? And it, it's like, what's been helpful? I really, you know, I felt really cared for when you remembered that I wasn't in a great mood and you picked up my favorite flavor of ice cream on the way home uh, to um, raising grievances And not letting them pile up and not letting that kind of distance that sometimes happens in in couples as they become parents um, grow. Yeah. So those are some of the the elements. I love those. It's funny because it reminds me a lot of the stuff we tell parents, different, but like similar to the stuff we encourage parents to do to develop that secure attachment with their children, right? Do Do I see you? Do I hold you in my mind? Do I look at the world from your vantage point? Do I have the capacity to soothe you and not just rescue you, but soothe you and join you in your pain so you don't feel alone in it? Like these are the recipes for being like a secure base and for being a solid and secure attachment figure and like, you know, there is attachment in our romantic relationships, just as there is attachment in our parent-child relationships. It's so it's about relationships, basically. Definitely. And, and part of what starts to happen is in that transition to, to parenthood where triangles can start to develop, that can start to stir up old feelings from triangles from, from the couple's childhood. And so they might have to work on that. Where yeah. one feels shut out. And, and sadly, it's often dad who feels like, you know, in, in, in straight couples where dad feels like um, mom holds all the power in, in the family. And it, it's kind of shifted um, in, in our culture. Uh, but where even if both are working, that, that to a large degree in, in straight couples, mom still manages most of the parenting. Um, it's changing, but not adequately. And there is, I think, partly because of, I don't know if it's COVID, I, I certainly am seeing it with a number of my couples, where there's a heightened degree of anxiety around safety and um, more anxiety about leaving children. So that that very often in these, in these heterosexual couples, Dad doesn't get a lot of chance to be alone with his kids, and then it, he doesn't feel empowered, mm. and it just becomes a, a, a vicious cycle. Yeah, um, and mom feels alone with it, but yet, you know, I, I, I can't tell you the number of times where where I've had couples say, the dad will say, "Well, I had them for a day," and mom comes in and says, "Well, the house is a mess. Why didn't you clean up all the toys?" Rather than, can this can there be something affirming? Um, mm-hmm. about, wow, you're, you're also a parent. You're going to do it differently than me. 
Yes. Oh, that's really interesting because I do, I see that a lot in terms of like supporting couples who are parenting together, who feel as though, okay, I'm parenting this way. My partner's parenting this way. We don't always agree. Is this going to mess things up? Like, is it going to derail what, what I'm trying to do with my kid? And I, and I often I'll say like, you know, we, obviously there's extreme situations where we're so undermining of one another in our parenting that we're going to, we really will confuse a kid and need to like develop some level of like overlap and consistency. But generally, as long as we're sharing values for the most part, um, we don't need to share every standard. Like we don't have to have the exact same relationship with our child as our partner does with our child. And that's okay. We can, we really have to let each parent have a relationship with their own child that is individual. Exactly. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better. And I would add to that, that it, it, it also requires maybe a new level for some couples who haven't had a lot of conflict to learn how to do conflict more effectively. Mm. That, you know, maybe they have had this incredibly harmonious, lovely, romantic courtship in, you know, early stage of their relationship, but it's almost impossible to become a parent and try to make decisions around parenting and have a partner and not have differences and disagreements. So, so couples have, you know, there's, there's a learning curve there and it depends also on what's been modeled for them. What have they observed in, you know, when they were kids growing up, what did they see their parents doing around compromise, around accepting influence Um, and around when there are these disagreements, if there is a rupture and someone is short or, um, you know, we're not even talking about the elements of parenting, like exhaustion and lack of time and, but all those things feed into um, couples are likely to get testier with each other. Yeah. When you are working with a couple who's struggling with that, maybe they like have kind of, this is like, whoa, we've never really had to learn how to navigate these kinds of intense moments with each other or this level of, you know, discrepancy in our value system or, our, or the way that we operate because we've Maybe it's been just smooth sailing, or maybe it's just that we haven't really had anything put pressure on those places for us. How do you support them? Like, what do you, what would you kind of try to work with a couple to, to think about differently or strategize around? Very often it's working with them both in terms of their physiology as well as in a more cognitive way. So it, it is helping them start to learn when they are um, in this kind of fight or flight um, state or even freeze where they just, just, you know, remove themselves, not even consciously, but just this, like, I can't, I can't do anything here. So I'm just going to shut down and disconnect. Um, learning kind of the early warning signs around that and what can help them self-regulate and self-soothe, uh, so that they can actually problem solve together. Cause I, I do a little bit of psychoeducation around, we can't really collaborate or problem solve when we are in that kind of physiological arousal. So Mm -hmm. it's learning to like, wow, I am starting to repeat myself. I'm getting loud. I have no interest in what my, my partner or spouse has to say. Those are signs for like, let's just take a pause. And that pause Mm -hmm. might actually need to be sometimes more for men, the physiology of, of, you know, whether it's testosterone or we don't quite know, but on average, if, if it gets to that state of someone who's just flipped their lid, 
Um, they need 20 minutes to come back. So it's learning how to take breaks, how to use timeouts effectively. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that with new parents, often it feels like there is no time. Yeah. It's learning then how can you do that? Maybe not the same day, but have an agreement of when we are this disrupted, we know we will come back within a, an agreed upon time. It might be as much as 24 hours. I discourage anything more than that. So that's one thing. And then the other is, I mean, there's a lot more, but learning how to express needs and express grievances without criticizing. Mm. How, what's your strategy? Because I think that that is a, that is a tough one for a lot of people, especially when they are like that first piece you mentioned is kind of a, a prerequisite, a prerequisite, right? Because you, in order to be able to articulate your frustrations or your grievances, you really need to be regulated because you need access to that prefrontal cortex, that thinking part of your brain. Exactly. So, so some of that is um, slowing things down. Kind of sometimes with really couples who really struggle with this, it's really being structured. So it's like you are going to have the floor for ten minutes, and your partner's role is to just help you feel understood in what you want or need here or what you fear. You know, what are the hopes and the fears around this issue? It might be around the child's safety. It might be around scheduling. It might be around, do you trust your in-laws to, to um, babysit overnight? Um, whatever that might be, it's like each, and it's postponing decision-making, kind of saying, let's first really take time to understand each other. What is this about for both of us? And speaking and, and really kind of coaching the speaker to speak about their own experience. So there's a shorthand for that. Describe yourself, not your partner. Like I get really anxious when your mother is around because I, I just see her on the phone and I worry she's not tending to Jason. <laughs> and I, it, it makes me feel really scared is very different than saying, well, you don't care about this because you, you do the same thing. You sometimes go and, and do your own thing. Or you're playing a game on your phone and Jason's crawling around and I get really, you know, that's not going to be helpful. So it's, it's really helping partner a talk about their experience and yeah. not, not blame, not criticize. And, and that we, what we often say is that behind every grievance or complaint is a longing. Um, can you get to the longing can you go deeper to get to that that's really impactful I feel like because I think you know we often will stay in anger because anger is in some ways protective than going to sadness or fear or grief which is kind of what I'm hearing you say right like if 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 I feel like my partner doesn't see the work I do or doesn't value my ability, like if I, like I'm thinking about the the father of our little fictitious Jason, right? Like if I'm being told that I don't care about him because I'm always on my phone, I might get mad because I'm being criticized. But deep, deep down... I might be hurt and sad because I want to be seen very much as a father who cares because I do. And to have that be, have to feel so misattuned to in that moment 
is so threatening and scary, but it's really hard for anybody. And I do believe a lot of men have grown up in a, in a society that has really, really, you know, sub, you know, sort of trained them to have less comfort in staying in the sadness and the vulnerable feelings, but to, anger is a more powerful feeling. It's a more, anger is a more powerful feeling. It's more empowering to go to anger than to say, oh, that, that really hit me hard. Like that really made me feel like the work that I do is not being seen. And I don't know that I agree with your view on me here versus how, what is the matter with you for saying that? There's a million ways I help, blah, blah, blah. You know what? It's safer to go there. It's much, much harder to go to the, oh, that got me. I don't feel that way. You got it. You got it. And I would add to the emotions that you listed, one that comes up so much between couples is shame and the defense against it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, basically, it's one of the worst feelings, even, you know, more so than, than grief or, um, or fear sometimes is I am, you know, it taps into very young places and people of I'm no good. And my partner sees that in me. So of course I have to, it's unbearable. So I have to defend a bit against it. I'm going to get defensive. And then in the defensiveness, you don't actually hear that partner A is really anxious about safety for, for Jason. And that it's, that's what it's about for, for that partner. It's not about shame. Yeah. So how do we communicate to our partners? Like, I guess that's really the, that's the, the task is like, how do you communicate? Like you said, your need, your wish, your fear, your feeling, the thing that's not happening and how it's impacting you in a way that does not necessarily activate that shame and that defensiveness in the other person. There's got to like, that's a, that is challenging. I, I agree. I think that starting with your own experience, describing you is a great place to start. It is describing you, it's using I statements, and it's um, also just because of how we're wired, not making it long paragraphs, just Hmm. kind of short, this upsets me, this is what I hope for. Yeah, Um, I often will too, like this reminds me of a formula that I use a lot with people for talking to their in-laws and things like this, by partners too, it's like one Give the, start with the benefit of the doubt or find that good intention. Like, I know you didn't mean to make me feel this way. Or I know you, I, I don't even know you, I don't think you maybe even realize that this is what, what I'm feeling because of this. Two, state the thing that's happened and how it makes you feel sort of objectively. Um, like, you know, when your mother-in-law came over and she was on her phone, it made me feel scared. And then state Number three would be state what you would like to see different next time. So you're actually giving some, you know, it's not just I'm saying this is a problem. I'm I'm coming up with a solution. Like I really want to make sure that next time she comes over, before she comes over, you are able to have a conversation with her about turning off her phone when she gets here. Um, and it's asked, so it's like asking for the thing you want. Exactly. That goes back to saying what's what's the wish or the longing underneath the complaint. And that it's also very specific and it's much easier for partners to be responsive without getting defensive. If they feel like they're given more, more guidance, like where do you want to go with this? Not just what's, what's not working. 
Yes. Yes. And it also doesn't put it like it, it, it owns some of the labor, right? If I just tell you I'm mad about this thing and that's it, what I'm doing is I'm handing you the problem and I'm implying, come up with a solution. And Mm -hmm. that's versus saying, this is the problem. This is how I think we could solve it. And now we're having a conversation about a collaborative problem solving thing versus, and you're, so we're bringing some of the work to the table. Exactly. And, and you're not just bringing the work to the, there's use the word collaborative. Uh, and I think that is so helpful to couples. It's like, we can do this together. There's more of the sense of I, you know, we versus I and you. Yeah. And that is what couples, you know, I love, I know I'm doing good couples work when a couple who hardly ever used the word we, when we started, uses we a lot. Yeah, that's so true. That's such a nice little like like subtle signal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Words have so much power. And I, I do think another piece of the transition for, for parents is, it's some of it's really incredibly exciting. It's not just the excitement of loving this, this, this new little being. It, it's also, we get to have a shared vision and it's an opportunity for them to talk about, to learn more about each other and like what worked for you in terms of how you were parented, what would you have wanted to be different? This is what I wanted. And, and we get to do it differently than our parents did. Maybe it was great. And we want to do a lot of what our parents did, but, I don't hear that, at least not the people who come to see me. I don't hear that all that often. Yeah. Well, I mean, interesting, right? Like why we think that is, right? The why people are going to come to you if they're struggling in their relationships and is, and this is just, I'm just wondering out loud, but like, is there a correlation between people who find themselves struggling in their relationships after having a baby and people who maybe didn't have the easiest relationship with their own parents not not causation necessarily, but correlation, right? Like, is there some ways that these these patterns start to play out, you know, generation to generation to generation? Because kind of like all the things we've already been talking about, like if you had a challenging relationship with your parents, what was modeled to you, right? What were you seeing them do in terms of navigating complex conflict? How did they handle your emotions? How did they handle each other's emotions? Um, how did they handle power dynamics? How did they handle holding space and, and listening to one another and being curious and open and interested, right? Those are these qualities we're talking about being so important in nurturing in our relationship with our partner. But if we ourselves didn't get that modeled to us by our own parents and we're coming into a partnership and we're becoming parents and all this old stuff is getting activated. Like it's, it's a powder keg for a lot of people. So it, I, it seems to make sense to me that there may be a correlation between people who go to couples therapy and, and have stuff. Not that then that doesn't mean that everyone who goes to couple therapy had trouble with their parents. It's just, I wonder if there's a connection to some of that. And I, I would say no doubt. I, you know, I don't know that I can quote any any research that I'm I'm sure there is, but I, nothing's coming to mind right now. I, I would add though that I, I think, and this is what the hope was of the bringing baby home program in the first place, that 
that kind of psychoeducational program, if that were integrated more, not as psychotherapy, but as, you know, just like people go to Lamaze class, um, as part of preparation for the transition to parenthood, oh, these are some things we should be mindful of. These are things we can do. All couples could stand to benefit from that because the research does show that um, the quality of the, whether it's marriage or, you know, a committed relationship, the quality of the relationship declines for about two thirds of couples um, during the, the first two years postpartum. That's, that's a lot of people, whether they're seeing, a, you know, going to seek help and most don't because if A, they don't have time, B, they may not have the resources. Three, there might be, you know, cultural or familial stigma around that. So, you know, the research in couples work is at least couples wait on average seven years from the time they're, they're struggling until the time they seek couples therapy. Wow. And that's those, those who don't get divorced. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, 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 I mean, part of why I wanted to do this with you is because I think there's so much to be gained um, from being proactive and to say most couples struggle with this right. transition. It is huge. There's more exhaustion, more decisions, more work, uh, much less time to devote to the relationship. Um, and then all these complicated um, hormonal shifts you know, we haven't talked about sex, but sex changes too. Um, and it's, 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 it's a lot for couples to navigate on their own, especially if they don't have good modeling and if they don't have a lot of support from, from family or community. Yeah. And I, it's just like, oof, you listed off so many things that like, I think are deeply ubiquitous to the parent experience. Like, it's not like, like almost all parents are going to be able to check off most of the things you just listed in terms of like things that they are navigating in terms of stressors post baby. And so, yeah, there's no reason to wait seven years to do something and to fix something that's already on the precipice of falling apart. Like how much better would it be to get sort of like preventative support or support at the beginning of the stressors instead of waiting. It's just funny because it's like, oh man, this is so the plight of parents everywhere. Like how many times, I'm just curious if anyone who's listening right now, like just, I'm going to do an invisible poll, but like how many parents that are listening right now after having a baby de delayed a dentist appointment or a, or a doctor's appointment or any other thing that was like, okay, I know I need to do this for my health or my wellness, but it's just, it keeps getting kicked to the bottom of the list. And like, those are things that are like really specific and concrete that we like are aware of. The idea that we're, am I prioritizing magic moments? That's not even something people even know to prioritize. They don't even know what, it, they don't even know that it is a thing. So it's like, oh, all these like ephemeral qualities that keep my relationship healthy they're not on anyone's list. And that's a problem. For sure. For sure. Yeah. But this yeah. is why I think that the work that you do is so valuable. And I'm really glad to do this podcast episode with you because I think, you know, if you could, if people are listening, they're like, oh, I could do that. Like I could spend 15 minutes a week or a day, you know, that five, how do I get to that five and a half hours or of like, doing some sort of like 
check in with my partner or a walk or a hug. Right. And, and even if it's not directly, let's say one person's with, with, you know, up at 2 AM taking a picture of baby and just sending it to your partner and saying, this makes me feel loved. You know, those small little, what we call bids for connection where it's like, you are on my mind. I may not be with you. I may be tending to our baby and you're on my mind. Yeah. And I think, you know, it makes me think too of like the baby centric, child centric dilemma. You know, it's a lot to hold a child in your mind all the time. And I think the expectation that we're supposed to makes us feel like, oh my God, I can't possibly add anything else to my list. But if we can kind of step back and dismantle that whole paradigm, which is, I think your big point, right? Like we don't have to be child centric and that's not a bad thing. How do we make space? I often say to moms when I'm working with individuals, not, you know, less with couples, but I'll say it to couples too. Uh, You know, good enough kids are for the most part resilient and yes, you don't want to neglect them. um, And they need a lot. They have a lot of needs and you don't have to do it perfectly. I think that's another sense I get um, more in this generation than I guess I thought existed in mine was this kind of perfectionism around parenting and and the pressure that is putting a more I mean I've seen it occasionally with dads um, but more on women where they feel like they have to be perfectly attuned perfectly responsive and I actually there to provide a little bit of psychoeducation saying that it's actually really helpful um, for your child just like it it is almost inevitable in, in your your relationship to have missteps and there's a lot of growth that can come from that. And I, I, I think that's the other thing I meant to mention with couples. I think it's really important that kids have an opportunity to witness how their parents, when they're, when there is an argument or a rupture, um, yes, it's got to stay within certain bounds. I mean, there's certain rules of engagement that, that I talk about with couples at the same time, the repair, the coming back together, for kids to see a little bit about how parents do that is an invaluable lesson in, in how do you how do you bring forgiveness, compassion, taking responsibility for mistakes made. Um, those are wonderful teaching opportunities for children. Yeah. Do you coach parents to like couples to to do that kind of repair? Like and how much of it is something that we want our children to witness that it is happening versus how much do we also want to kind of like ref, like actively communicate to our kids, like directly, like you saw me and daddy yelling and that was probably pretty scary. Yeah. And, you know, we do fight sometimes because when you love somebody, you do share it all with them, but we made up and now we're, we're feeling a lot better. And just to like the whole meta communication of the, of the repair and also, or versus like just kind of modeling it without necessarily narrating that piece later. I, I think kids benefit from both. I, I don't think every event has to be narrated, but the big ones do. And certainly if kids have questions or if you're sensing that 
your child is is distressed from something that they they observed. And yes, again, I mean, I, I, I'm not suggesting that parents have these horrific arguments in front of their kids. Um, ideally, they will, you know, stay within certain boundaries of respect. Um, and we often talk about this is more from my uh, internal family systems training, but speaking for your parts, very young and reactive parts rather than from them. Yeah. So I am really angry about this or I'm really annoyed or it really hurt me rather than lashing out or attacking. Yes. Um, Can you, just if people aren't so familiar with IFS, could you kind of articulate, like, pull a little bit of uh, the curtain back on what we're talking about when we talk about parts and we don't have to get into the whole thing, but like just kind of in the context of like this, because I think it's, I think it's super, super helpful to think about our relationships in terms of our internal relational systems. So yeah, I'd love for you to elaborate on that a little bit. I I wish I could show you an image. There's this wonderful, um, it was a sculpture at Burning Man several years ago that I show uh, to couples sometimes that have, uh, it's a wire sculpture and the couple is sitting back to back and looking down and with arms crossed. And then inside of it, there are two young children turned towards each other and one is extending the other one a flower. And I, I love that because I think that speaks to um, what in IFS we would call there these young vulnerable parts of us called exiles that are either too overwhelmed by feelings of fear or shame or, or sadness um, for us at the time that these events unfolded to be able to tolerate. It's just too much. Too, the feelings are too big. So we develop strategies or in IFS we call them protectors that almost become like sub-personas, sub-personas that um, kind of like every time someone goes near something in me that brings up shame, I come up with this part of me that is, well, what about what you do? And and gets defensive and like, yeah, you know, so, so I didn't change the diaper even though Jason <laughs> was wet. Yeah, so what? What about the other night when he was crying and you wouldn't get up? That, that's, that's a protector. Um, and it, it is in the service of not feeling things that when we were very young, we couldn't handle. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's not adaptive. It often, it sometimes we still need those strategies in extreme instances, but for the most part, especially with our partner, wow, if we could say, wow, that felt really bad. And I'm actually feeling a little bit of shame around that. I forgot to do that. Um, and it feels really bad, but yeah, I, I, I really need to be more mindful of that. And could you maybe say it more gently next time? Cause it mm-hmm. really, the way you just said it was, was hard for me to hear. Oh, and what I, where my head goes when you speak like from that, like sort of more integrated self that says, oh, that was so hard for me to hear. I felt shame. It's almost like in order to do that work we ourselves have to go find that scared inner part, that young part, that the exile and say, you don't have to protect me. I got this. Shame isn't dangerous for me. I can talk about it with my wife or my husband or my partner and not be in danger. So I got you, right? Like, let me handle this. 
that's a lot of the work I think in, in IFS, that integration, but it's funny too. Cause I think when we think about, if you're thinking about a young, an inner self, an inner child or, a, or a part that's getting defensive to protect you from feeling shame, for example. And like you said, like some of these are very young parts. They, they stem from like feeling unbearable shame when we were six or seven. But if you have a six or seven-year-old part come in to fight with your partner, they're going to have six or seven-year-old social skills and conflict resolution skills. And they're going to fight like a six or seven-year-old. This is why we feel so kind of like when we, you know, the, these immature parts of us come out when we're fighting with people because that's, that's our young parts. And so it's like, I think it's about having a lot of compassion for ourselves and the parts of us that get matted to say like, oh yeah, you're seven. You know, you don't. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and some of that requires sometimes slowing down, pausing. It's like something just happened inside of me. And rather than going into a reactive, immediate response, can I take a moment to check in with that? And there's a a couple's version of um, internal family systems called IFIO, which is intimacy from the inside out. And we talk about doing a U-turn that rather than the finger pointing at the other one, you, 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 it's like doing the U-turn, like what is that in me that just got touched? What does it need from me first and foremost? And maybe then I can represent it to my partner. Yeah. And how many people are like, God, if maybe like, maybe my partner really needs to hear this, right? Or maybe I really need to hear this episode, right? Like this, this idea, like these are new ideas. IFS is new to the world. Like it's really not been around for that long um, in the, you know, timeline of therapies. And I think it's a incredibly useful way of thinking about relationships and self. So, you know, I'm, I imagine if people are listening to this and like, oh, wow, like that would so help my relationship if one or both of us could do that. Like, what are resources for people? Like, where can they go? Like, whether they want to work with you or work with another clinician who's trained in this type of, of therapy for couples, like what, where can they go to get information on that? Um, there is, um, I can, I can send it to you, but through, there is Tony Herbine Blank is the person who founded the couples version of IFS and she has a directory of clinicians on her website. So if you, if you Google either her name or even IFIO, mm-hmm. um, you should get there. Uh, I also think there are other wonderful approaches to, to working with couples, including um, Sue Johnson's emotion-focused couples therapy. There's a lot of similarity between the two. There's some differences. Um, and again, I think there's a lot that couples can do without having to go see a therapist to just start with, let's take some time for us. Let's learn how to do conflict a little bit um, more patiently and slowly and um, let's, um, let's learn how to do repairs Yeah, and let's know each other. The thing you said at the beginning, holding each other in mind. I mean, there's the, you know, the, in psychoanalysis, we talk about maternal preoccupation. That's partly hormonal and with new moms, maybe more than new dads. Like I am so in my relationship with my, my infant, 
And I think it, there is a way of, of telling new moms, and you have this other relationship. Mm-hmm. How do you hold it in mind? Mm-hmm. Yes. I feel like that's so important. I think, and again, to bring us full circle back to what we were talking at the beginning, like to to hold our partners in mind and to hold ourselves in mind because we can't, it's like there is this sort of like delicate balance, right? The whole family system needs to be healthy. My relationship with my child, yes, is critical. My relationship with myself is going to be a huge part of my ability to have a healthy relationship with my kid and my partner. And my relationship with my partner, having that be healthy allows me to have that healthy family system, right? If I have that support, if I feel like I can communicate conflict and resolve it, and I trust that I'm being held in mind and I'm able to hold them in mind, that's going to give me the, the resources, the emotional resources to then ask for time for myself or give my child what they need because my cup is full, right? Um, it's all connected. It's all connected. And I, I think as you say, it, it sounds, it could ima- I can imagine some of your audience saying that sounds overwhelming. And I, I go back to, and it doesn't have to be done perfectly. Um, that sense of it's good enough. Yeah, it's good enough. That's so helpful. Thank you so much, Suzanne, for coming on. If people want to connect with you or learn more about your practice, where can they find you? Sure. I have a website. Um, it is uh, Dr. Just D-R-S as in Suzanne Berger, B-U-R-G-E-R.com. And that's probably the best way to find me. Um, and I, I love talking about this topic because it's just close to my heart. Yeah, I can feel that. I really can. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. There is so much that changes when we become parents. Not only do our romantic relationships shift, but our whole identity can feel like it's been shaken up. This is why it's so vital to have support that can help you start feeling more confident and settled during this period of big transition. I think that all new parents should have access to the information and support that they need to help them during this messy, chaotic, lovely, but often stressful time. In my free masterclass, Confident Parenting from the Start, I'll teach you my confidence recipe with three key elements to pay attention to, plus three things you can let go of that can make or break your trust in yourself in your child's first year. You'll walk away from the 60-minute virtual presentation with actionable tools that you can put into practice right away to challenge your self-doubt, to stop panic Googling once and for all, and actually find the ease and enjoyment in early parenthood. Just go to drsarahbrenn.com forward slash confident parenting to sign up for one of my free parenting masterclasses. That's drsarahbrenn.com forward slash confident parenting. I hope to see you there. And until next time, don't be a stranger.